Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. This is going to be episode 69 of the show, and you can find the show notes more at lastnighter.com slash 69. We're going to be doing Galaxy Quest with our friend, the Anarchist Mom, from anarchistmom.com, and we did not choose the uh, guest appearance related to the number of the episode. I just want to make that clear that this is in no way a problematic... Uh, a Me Too moment right now? Me Too, hashtag episode 69. <laughs> so, Anarchist Mom, before we get to that Google description, tell us about your show, your website, and where can people find it? Uh, uh, you can find my podcast, all the platforms, finally. Um, yeah, just a little podcast that I'm supposed to do every week, but I missed Um, But yeah, I just something on Facebook that pisses me off, and I rant about it for like three or four minutes. So these are little hot takes. They're short, but spicy. And I, I, I've listened to a few, and you always open with like, my mood today is this song yep. or something. And then you yep. talk about one of the morons who... Uh, <laughs> Engages with people on your on your Facebook profile page. Yeah. Well, the last couple of times it's been about dumbass, but yeah, pretty much. Well, I like it because it's spicy and it's gossipy, and people like to hear that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, right or wrong. I mean, it's it's vapid, right? That that whole gossipy stuff, but it also is appealing to people for some reason, and they're short, so <laughs> that's helpful. Now, uh, you you were our guest before on episode 48, where we talked about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So that can be found at lastnighters.com slash 48. So we will link that on this show notes page as well. So people can hear your prior uh, audience uh, experience, your introduction to our audience. Also on thelaunchpadmedia.com. I think I said that already. And uh, Robert, before we get to that Google description, you have any comments related to our guest um, prior appearance or listening to her show at all? No, we're just going to tread lightly. This woman, he is really upset about the patriarchy misogyny. <laughs> so we're going to be really careful. All right. So <laughs> she will, she will destroy us. So if we were doing Jurassic Park, she'd be a Trigosaurus. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, that that's enough uh, filler content here, and and I say that advisedly because both of you indicated that you didn't think there was much to talk about on this one. So we're we're trying to elongate Prove this. We're trying to elongate this just a little bit. So let's do that with the Google description. I'll do a very slow read. All right. Okay, perfect. Yes. All right. Galaxy Quest, 1999. Fantasy sci-fi, one hour, 42 minutes. 7.3 on that IMDb, 90% Rotten Tomatoes, 70% Metacritic. However, 92% of Google users like it. The description is thus. The stars of a 1970s sci-fi show now scraping a living through reruns and sci-fi conventions are beamed aboard an alien spacecraft. Believing the cast's heroic on-screen dramas are historical documents of real-life adventures, the band of aliens turn to the ailing celebrities for help in their quest to overcome the oppressive regime in their solar system. Release date, Christmas 1999, right before the Y2K bug. We can talk about that. That'll be a little bit more filler. Uh, box office, $90.7 million. The director's Dean Parisot, or Parasot. I'm not sure how you say his name. This plays on the IFC channel on Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, 5.30 p.m. and 1 a.m., respectively. Anarchist Mom, your thoughts on the description so far? And also, uh, a follow-up question, why'd you pick this one? <laughs> I think description is great. 
Um, reason I picked when I talked to you guys about being on the show, I went Stone, but then Robert was like, we done did that movie. And so then the first movie that came to my mind was Galaxy Quest. But then I changed it and I wanted to do Shallow Hal. I didn't want to pay $14.99 plus theft to watch it. That's why. All right. I am so rebuked. But yeah, $14.99 plus theft um, is a bit rich for my for my blood here. Uh, Robert, your take on the description and the uh, verbal assault that just occurred. <laughs> well... Yes, uh, you should. You are a victim of her verbal uh, attack. That is violence. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Words hurt. Anarchist's mom cause harm, pain, and Daniel's feels. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the movie, yeah, that's that's what happens in the movie. Um, it was funny. There's some good stuff, kind of, a little bit. A little bit. It, it, play, it plays like an episode of Star Trek, an old episode of Star Trek, but kind of updated for the 20th. end of the 20th century. I don't know. It's got bad CGI that didn't age well. It's got a really good creature effects on the main villain, though. He looks really cool. Uh, I thought he was really good. Yeah, what's his name? Sisek? Is that Sarek. right? Saris. See, Sarek? Sarek. Sarek. S. Saris. Saris? Saris. Okay, I'll take What is she saying? I can't Who knows? I don't know. When a woman talks, it's just blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. All right, Andrew's mom. If Andrew's I wanted mom. to be verbally assaulted, I would have gone to my parents' house. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you can come here and get the same love of uh, level of love and care. <laughs> All right, so Robert, you mentioned the Star Trek, and yeah, this is a bit of a send up of Star Trek, and it is it is so much one that during a convention, I think in uh, the early 2010s, so maybe 2011 or so, they included this in their ranking of best Star Trek movies up to that point. There were 11 legitimate Star Trek movies in the franchise at that time and they added this as the 12th for their rankings and this came out as number seven of list of best star trek movies up to 2000 yeah i mean the 90s were filled with some craptacular star trek movies the next generation ones did not start off well i think they got ended a little bit better but i think that was post 2000 i think it was in 2011 when this poll was taken at a convention oh well then so it might have included the first of the um Chris. You gotta have the the first Star Trek. You got Rathacon, maybe Star Trek three, and then four is crap. Five is crap. Six is crap. But then it gets a little bit better at the end. I don't know. All right. So I know that our, our listeners can't see this, but some of our viewers can. We're talking to the hand. Your hand is like up <laughs> while you're talking. So. <laughs> it's like it's like bad CGI effects. Like oh, the monster of the hand is gonna get us. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I found that kind of interesting that they actually included this in here and. It is, it is a cool thing that they do this parody satire of Star Trek and the concept of the conventions and super fans, like knowing so much more about the show than even the people who made the show. Because they're the ones behind the scenes, like reconstructing, like, okay, this must have been here because in this episode, they turn the corner and you can see this. So therefore the dilithium crystal, you know, box is over there or whatever. And it reminded me of when we watched um, The Shining for an episode we did a while back, there were people who were analyzing and doing like layouts of of the Overlook Hotel and how the um, the rooms and where the windows were were actually impossible. And they had theorized that that was intentional by Kubrick so that viewers wouldn't know what was wrong, but they would sense this unease because where things were in relation to each other didn't make sense, kind of not on a cognitive level or a conscious level, but it, you know, it, it, it didn't add up. So then it would kind of weigh on people as a viewer. Right. So I think you're specifically talking about when Jack first gets interviewed 
for the job. There's a window behind the guy that doesn't make any sense at all. But um, as far as the movie is concerned, the uh, the writing in Galaxy Quest, it's actually pretty tight. Like you were saying, um, there's a lot of good foreshadowing done for the, the nerds that know all the stuff about the ship and they know all the details about everything and they establish early on that the actors don't really know that much. And then you get a payoff for that at the very end. It was pretty fun where the actors, I mean, who do they turn to when they need to have specific knowledge about the ship? They call the nerds. Uh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, the nerd, the nerdy uh, fan base that they, they really save the day. But there's also an arc with the characters themselves because they start out, they were just actors. The show was mildly successful. They uh, had a bit of a cult following. And, and so they were on that sort of uh, convention circuit for a while and, and doing like electronic store openings. And there was some jealousy going on because the Tim Allen character was like the most famous of them or he got the most attention, but it was also attention of like people were embarrassed about by him. Like, like they were giving him attention because he was, he thought it was serious. And so they were making fun of him. Do you follow what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like, I'm not sure how to say it, but, um, so he's patronizing them. Well, he had notoriety as being this guy who was very full of himself, but people never took him seriously. But he thought they were serious about their adoration for him. I mean, granted, there were some groupie type women, at least like displayed in, in the convention scenes. But for the most part, like those guys in the bathroom who were making fun of all of the hack, hack actors, the has-beens, they were saying, oh, yeah, the Tim Allen guy, yeah, he, he thinks he's so great, but he's such a buffoon. You know, everyone, everyone knows he's a jackass. And that's what causes him to, to break out of uh, his sort of haze, you know, his comfortable haze of... Oh, you know, I was famous and now I just get drunk a lot and go to these conventions on whatever timeline I want. You know, I make the fans wait, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but he uh, he realized that people were not really into him anymore or, or that they had never been in the first place. So to some people, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny that he was so in this bubble that he didn't have a realistic perspective on what other people outside of the nerd fandom thought of him. So yeah, when he hears this mocking talk, in the bathroom, he's kind of taken aback and totally changes his perspective. And all of a sudden he's out of character and he hates this whole thing and he's embarrassed to be this guy. I thought it was a little unrealistic, but you know, you gotta, you gotta have an arc. So it's all right. Yeah. And it does pay off at the end because he tells the Justin Long character, it's not even a real thing. It's just a TV show. Those are cardboard cutouts. And at the end, he's like, he's it's all real. It. Yeah. It's all real, man. He's like, I knew it. I knew it was real. So it was a nice little payoff. And by the way, this was uh, Justin Long's movie premiere, like his first movie, as was uh, Rain Wilson's first appearance. And he had all of like one or two lines. But um, Robert, you you actually have met Rain Wilson. Um, yeah. I don't know how much so, but uh, was it during the um, office kind of thing where he was known for that? Or was he doing other things when you knew him? No, he was he was a struggling actor in New York City when I knew him. he was doing a. Uh a show called The New Bozina, which was a three-man like comedy improv performance type thing off-Broadway. And um, fun fact, we wouldn't know Rain Wilson as the world-famous actor that he is if it weren't for our wonderful favorite thing called Rent Control. Oh, so he was, in a, he was in a very rent-controlled apartment and his, he didn't, you know, he wouldn't leave, but his landlord was desperate to get him out and to get a new tenant in, because when you get in a new tenant in, you can set your price, you know, like at a market rate. But anybody who's grandfathered in, you have to like keep it at this low rate. So he actually offered Rain 30 grand to get out 
And Rain was like, okay, I'll take the $30,000 and I'll move to LA. And he moved to LA right around 2000-ish. And his first gig, I think he had like a little bit of commercial work, but then his first main real gig was like, I think Days of Our Lives. He was a recurring character and he survived, I think, for maybe a few episodes before getting a few bit parts in like this movie. And then before he really landed his big office role, he took off from there. But yeah, he was... um, his dad was married to my mom. So we were, we were stepbrothers. That's another movie we should do, stepbrothers. I think, uh, I know that you're kind of down on this comedy bent that I've got, but there is so much to talk about. There is not so much to talk about. Everything's done for comedic effects. So anytime anything happens, you can't really take it seriously. And because I want to analyze it from an anarcho capitalist economic perspective or a real world type of a perspective, would this really happen? Blah, blah, blah. What are the motivations that go into this? And the comedy is just like, well, he did it because it's funny. Right. And we've already brought up real world situations and rent control. Anarchist mom, tell us. Tangentially. Tan freaking gentially. <clears throat> I know you've heard this show before. That's, that's how we do. That's how we do. Anarchist mom, let's talk about rent control a little bit. What incentives would be at play when you have a situation as described by Robert where you have a tenant who's underpaying versus market rates and you've got an owner of the property who would like to actually make a profit, actually make money and not lose money on the building they're renting out? What, what incentive is in play there when there's rent control? I don't know. <laughs> well played, Anarchist Mom. That's a good answer. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. All right. Well, you didn't go with the hard balls. You got to throw softballs at her before she gets comfortable, Daniel. All right. Fair enough. Well, my, my thoughts on this is that the incentive is to do whatever they can to get that tenant out. Um, and usually it's not offer them 30 grand. Usually it's, don't fix the heat. Don't fix the plumbing. You know, things like fall apart. Uh, things don't get fixed and, and uh, they're not nice to them, you know, things like that. And then you and, get vilified as a slumlord. Right. You get vilified as a slumlord, as in the uh, Daredevil series on Netflix, right? Yes. Yes. And Murdoch is all about getting, uh, getting uh, those, those terrible, terrible slumlords who are victimizing the old ladies who are paying the rent controlled apartment prices where, you know, it's like a hundred dollars for an apartment that would go for $2,000. It's like ridiculous. You know, like what, what do you expect to happen there when the incentive structure is such that you can't make money on something you own, you're forced into having these tenants there. You, it's your property. You can't, you know, you can't do anything about it uh, illegally. So you go to, you know, less legal means makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. You offer your tenant, Hey, you just want to take some cash. Because I may lose in the short term, but I'm going to make it out in the long term. And this is how I actually get around this dumbass law. Now, there are other ways that are around this dumbass law. Um, I visited New York a couple of times, um, like 10 years ago, and had some friends there. And they were telling me that because of rent control, they would skirt that by having what's called a key fee. So, yeah, you can have the apartment for $300 a month, but the key is going to cost you 10 grand. What? A month? Up front, the key will be ten grand, and then your apartment is three hundred dollars a month for the year for the lease. Damn. And so it's a way of of getting around the regulation, but you're still paying the market rate for the apartment because if you add the ten grand plus the three hundred a month for the year, break it across twelve, you would end up with the same amount. It still screws things up, though. I mean, if you want to move, then you got to have a huge chunk of cash. Right, but- and Roth talks about this in some of his lectures, where it used to be a normal thing for people to move in New York, like every year or two. It was just like a normal thing. You'd move to another borough, another neighborhood, whatever. And when these rent control situations happened, all that stopped or a lot of it stopped. And it, and people were like, 
well, I've got this rent control apartment now and I'm going to live here for 40 years or as long as I can. Right. Like what in Friends. Yes, like in Friends. Yep. I don't remember if that was specifically rent control, but it must have been. It was. It was for sure? Yeah, that was the storyline. All right, and there's what, also- was it, was it positively told? Um, positively depicted as good thing? Because they had lived in a really nice apartment, as I recall. Yeah, it was. It's totally positively told. Yeah, and then there's that famous Seinfeld episode where <laughs> they're reading the obituaries, trying to find apartments where they can get the- uh, Get the rent controlled apartment. Lots of episodes of Seinfeld where they're trying to get apartments when people die. There's at least three or four. Yes, yes, because it's so hard to get a good apartment in New York City, or at least it yeah. was at the time. Because right. government gets in the way of the market. By Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, we <laughs> shall avenge those victims of rent control. Which Walter Block has has a great um, great book, Defending the Undefendable, and he talks about the um, the miser and the libeler and the slanderer and and all these things, and the slumlord, and how they're actually providing a valuable service to the community. And uh, one of his books is, um, he has pictures of Dresden after World War II bombings, and the Bronx after rent control. And the trick is, you got to figure out which is which, and you can't really tell. So rent control, you know, totally disincentivizes taking care of the properties. And uh, lo and behold, all of a sudden, there's a lot of fires for the insurance money, uh, when when you have things like that. So perverse incentives at play. But let's get back to Galaxy Quest, shall we? Yeah, because there's so much to talk about. <laughs> Robert, never give up and never surrender, all right? I'm not going to surrender, but I might give up on this movie. I've got, I wrote, I got, I wrote, wrote down two notes I'm in case we run out of ideas. Episode. Yeah. All right, Daniel, you, you got action. What? Give me your first note, and okay. then we'll go to Anarchist. Direct it towards Anarchist Mom. Okay, Anarchist Mom. Okay, I'm ready. I'm a little drunk. Aren't we all? So... The Sigourney Weaver character, yeah, who has your favorite line, yeah, she is unhappy with her depiction of her of her character on the show. She's yeah. just a person that re repeats the computer, and then she's just like the sexy like eye candy lady. And even yeah. during the convention, she's brought out onto the stage with like the sexy what like striptease type music. Oh yeah. And I was curious how you thought, because she kind of struck me as like this kind of like upset feminist lady. However, I mean, if, if, if the entirety of your character is just how you look and then otherwise you're kind of this dumb character, I can see why that would be annoying. However, I mean, this is a completely voluntary job and she is obviously benefiting from it. Otherwise, she'd be doing something else. What did you think about the character? Obviously, she's your favorite. You identify with her on some level. What? What do you think about her gripes? Talk, talk about your favorite character. Come on. I don't know if she's my favorite. It's like that, that one quote that she did. Um, but I mean, obviously. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Don't hold us in suspense. What is the quote? <laughs> the quote is, um, she's like, I have one job on this lousy ship. It's stupid, but I'm doing it. So she has to rebuke her. But I don't know. I mean. Well, she is the, the middleman between the captain and the computer. She serves absolutely zero function. All The, cap, the captain says something. Computer do whatever and then she goes computer do whatever he said right. and then when the computer says something she just repeats it as if she's translating the computer but she's not you know i actually had this experience today with uh google uh whatever on on your phone you, know, you can talk to your phone and last night i stumbled upon i said okay and then something else and the phone responded and it said would you like me to tell you a joke and so i said <laughs> okay and it said you know something like uh, how do you know elephants are always ready to travel and they always have a trunk with them, but I'm, you know, that kind of a thing. And so I thought, oh, that might be fun to show the kids tomorrow. So today, right. 
And so I, I went inside the house from my office and I left my phone out here. And so I wanted to do the joke thing with my kids and my wife's phone was on the counter and the kids were at the table. And I'm like, oh, okay, I will talk to my wife's phone and get the, get it to tell a joke. It didn't recognize my voice because it had been programmed with her voice when she set it up. So my theory is that the NEAS protector computer system is attuned to Boobs McGee's voice and not Tim <laughs> Allen's voice. <laughs> yes. See, she she can complain all she wants, but paid all that money to show off. Like she complained about like her TV guide appearance, like three paragraphs about her how her boot. But I mean, obviously that bad to do it. So I don't think she has much to complain about. She made money off her boot. Now, what about the Snape sheriff? I wish I could. <laughs> what about the Snape character, the sheriff from Nottingham? He was a uh, a Shakespearean stage actor, well trained. He felt that this was beneath him and he took the job at the time and he was typecast. This was very much like Leonard Nimoy after his turn as Spock, that he was also sort of typecast as a certain type of actor. And he, in um, you know interviews in the 70s and 80s, lamented the fact that he was always thought of as Spock. And so he, wouldn't, he wasn't able to play other roles other than um, I saw some clips of him doing like singing about hobbits wearing bell-bottoms and playing a ukulele, I think. Sounds like some strong roles, yeah. I had a dream about Cap Kirk and Spock when we were driving around the neighborhood listening to music in a convertible. All right, you are drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's... That's a strong story, Anarchist Mom. Appreciate that share. So is this the level of content that you usually offer your listeners? It's what they come for. You can't get it anywhere else. All right, well, they should support you on Patreon. And so I uh, think go to patreon.com. Well, That's great. And... and uh, are we? We're one of your supporters, right? Yes, you are. Yeah, and you're one of ours. So it's this uh, reciprocal relationship here. Or yep. just cancels out. Yeah, totally cancels. It does. <laughs> well, not only does it it, it cancels <laughs> out, but we have to pay taxes on it. So really, we should stop doing it because we're disenabling them. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on on uh, the Alan Rickman character? Because he's got a similar situation, not with his boobs, but he's got like he's uh, he's over talented for the position, and then he gets kind of pigeonholed into it and he he's very saddened by this like it very it, it bothers him very much and like when the tim allen character shows up later he's like oh did i miss uh you know rickman's uh, mental breakdown or, or yeah. panic attack yeah yeah i don't i don't i just feel like did it i don't know i don't know robert you mm, about sounds like she knows but she doesn't <laughs> want to tell us what does omega 13 do <laughs> so rickman I mean, getting typecast for your most famous role as an actor happens a lot, I think. You know, like um, all the Harry, Harry Potter, Potter kids. Yeah, all the Harry Potter kids, the Hobbit actors. Anytime you're in some kind of big monumentous thing that just goes crazy, you're going to get known for that role. I mean, how long was Keanu Reeves, Neo? It just happens as an actor. If you if you have the, the benefit of, you know, being on a show. I was just watching Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is out right now. It's super hot. And they did a bunch of um, cast interviews all about talking about their time on Game of Thrones. And, you know, I think I forget I forget which one of them said, you know, I was just I was how was, they were asking him, what was your you know last season? Like, he was like, well, I was just savoring it because, you know, I, I count my lucky stars every day that I'm on this huge show that's just number one worldwide. And you just don't capture lightning in a bottle like that ever again in your career. Chances are super rare for it to happen once, let alone happen twice. And yeah, so you're going to be known for the rest of your life as X character on that show. 
you can either look at that as a positive or a negative. Some actors can embrace it and celebrate it and go, wow, that's an amazing thing that happened to me. Other actors go, ugh, now I'm typecast. I remember when um, David Schwimmer, when he was Ross on Friends, yeah. he was interviewed and he said, if I'm still Ross when I'm whatever, 50 or 60 or something, he's like, that'll just be the worst thing. And he's probably still Ross because he hasn't gone on to do you know anything that anybody remembers him. But he was in Paul Bearer. Still That's you think of you think of hey you remember David Schwimmer oh yeah the guy in Paul Bearer no he's Ross be no. Ross it's like it's like when Snoop Dogg turned his name to Snoop Lion it's like does anybody think of him as Snoop Lion oh you know that raptor Snoop Lion no nobody says that well there are some successful um, self-identifying as something else that do occur we've got the Puff Daddy to P Diddy transition we've got the yeah Bruce that was a smooth transition uh huh. Bruce Jenner to whatever. Another smooth transition, yeah. <laughs> Nothing but smooth transitions. That's how the world goes. But, but uh, back to the typecasting thing. I think Rain Wilson is always going to be Dwight Schrute. He will. Yeah. And you even see that in the two lines he has in this movie. I see Dwight when I when I see him in this movie as briefly as he's in here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. He was Dwight. He has done some interesting work, though, where he is definitely not Dwight. Um, he was in a movie with, um, who's the guy that was in, um, played Robin in the Batman series. Chris O'Donnell? No, 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 no. Uh, next one. The next one. Um, he was in Inception. Leonardo DiCaprio? No, the other guy. He has three names. <laughs> He's one of those three name guys. What the hell? Anyway, he was in that movie and he was like the super angry, like depressed, rough guy. Anyway, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. But if he's ever in any kind of comedy He's just, yeah, he's... Now, did you ever see The Rocker? Was he was he Dwight in The Rocker or not? Mostly, the, he was mostly Dwight in The Rocker. I saw The Rocker. Um, I, you, know, I, you know, having a connection to the guy, I followed him for quite a while. I don't know, I know what he's doing now. I haven't watched anything he's done in a long time. But right now he's, um, he's got a YouTube channel called Soul Pancake. And he is, <laughs> um, he is a, he's one of the few Baha'is in the in the world but especially in like hollywood which is a, a religious and um he kind of promotes that on this religious show it, it's kind of like a you know mysticism and comedy and whatever anyway that's what he's into is it the type of thing that it, you would watch it and go this is the this is what jp sears makes fun of i don't know who jp sears what jp sears is, is the guy with the long don't, don't hair. ignorant shame me <laughs> you know, how dare you Hilarious videos about veganism and religion and yoga and all these things. And he, he, awesome. he, actually, he does um, comedy tours as well uh, as a result of this. And I think he got famous for being a YouTuber or a Facebook Live person who was doing like these tongue in cheek, like over the top, you know. Okay, I have seen a few of his videos now that you mention it. I have seen he's probably he could probably make fun of Baha'ism. I don't know. It's it's Baha'ism was like Baha'i. It started like the 1800s by some guys in the Middle East. Abdul Baha, Baha'u'llah. Shogi Effendi, some names. They got cool right. names. Well, I mean, I mean, I thought we offended a bunch on the passion. The, the Bob. Crap. There's a guy named the Bob. The Bob. The B A A B. I think it's pretty badass. Anyways, everybody's got to have you know your own pantheon of like figures, not yeah. action figures. I mean, some could have, you could have action figures. You know, the whole franchise. You could have the movies, the the TV shows, the books. You know, like Christianity has. Or like Osho had. He didn't have the action figures, but he did have the books and the movies and the uh, the clothing selection at. The, uh, yeah, yeah, there's the no clothing line. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, all the red or the pink or whatever the color was. So anyway, um, let's talk about, let's shift over to Justin Long a little bit because we just did a movie with him recently, Dodgeball, where 
I mean, Justin Long, he's like the same character in every movie that he's in, as far yeah, as I he's, recall. He's young, earnest guy. Yeah. Now, now there was a time when he was doing Mac commercials with the nerdy guy who was playing the PC, and Justin Long was the hip, cool guy. Like, I'm a Mac. I'm cool. And the PC guy was super nerdy. So I just recently had my MacBook Pro die on me. And so I now associate that terrible event with Justin Long. So I don't know why we've been doing Justin Long movies uh, lately, but... That son um, of a bitch. Let's go get him. Well, let's go beat the crap out of him. Well, let's, let's rant about Max a little bit, because I don't know if you know this, but the last couple of generations of their um, products haven't been as good. It's like they've been treading water. You know, they're, they're trying to like innovate a little bit, but not nearly as much as when Jobs was around. They added this touch bar thing, which no one likes. They changed the best keyboard on a laptop into this terrible butterfly mechanism that has very low key travel and gets gummed up quickly. And now they're on the second generation on it and they put a silicone membrane in there to try to dampen it and make it better, but people still hate it. So my the point of this mini rant is not only to fill time, but... <laughs> To mention that though my MacBook has died, I don't have one in mind to replace it with. Like it's that it's that um, bad of a situation in regards to their offering, in my humble opinion. So your old MacBook is dying, but Apple is in such a shitty state as a company without jobs. You don't trust their product. Yeah, I'm not interested in buying a product where I'm going to hate the keyboard and it's going to cost me two to three times as much for the same under the hood horsepower to have it in a you know nicer form factor and Mac OS. Used to be called OS 10, now it's Mac OS. Then why don't you just buy a PC? Say that again? Why don't you just buy a PC? I've got one. What's the problem? It's not my Mac. If I could have my old Mac back, I would- He's emotionally connected to it. It's a security blanket. He sleeps with it. He's kissed it. Well, I also had a bunch of programs and files on there, and those are all now stranded on this dead device. And that does not translate over to the Windows machine. I don't like Mac. You can't just like copy and like you yeah, can't you just can. press click and copy and I do it all day long. I used to anyway. It's different and I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like things that are different. <laughs> I like things to be exactly the same. That was one of their campaigns, think different. <laughs> was that the one where they had the woman um throw the the hammer throw into the big big brother type screen? There's a very famous commercial. Oh was yeah. that like nineteen eighty four? Right. That's the original yeah. Macintosh yeah. commercial. Super Bowl, Super Bowl commercial, I think. Yeah. Kind of Broke them onto the scene. Hey, Daniel, do you want to talk about Galaxy Quest? <laughs> let's, let's talk about, well, before we do that, since we're talking about yeah, religion. Yeah, let's not get back to the movie. Who gives a shit? Let's <laughs> talk about whatever you want to talk about. Let's grind, what's grinding your gears today, buddy? Well, our audience, our audience has been with us a long time. So this might be a bit of a letdown episode, but I do want to harken back to our Passion of the Christ episode, which I don't know if, well, I do know that you felt similarly to me that in the lead up to that recording, that there was some reticence. Like we were nervous about how we were going to be able to discuss that movie without being over the top offensive. And ironically, or ironic, ironical enough, we did offend somebody, but not for the reasons that I thought we would offend them. Not for any of the religious stuff, not for any of the religious overtones, nothing. None of that seemed to elicit any negative response. In fact, uh, people who are Christians wrote on our YouTube channel under the video, they said, oh, you know, we really enjoyed this episode. You guys handled it very well. Even though you said you were atheists and you had the anarcho-Christian on, it was a good episode. Well, one guy apparently took issue with us, and I quote, 
You have a disgusting attitude toward poverty and the disabled. Grow out of your selfish attitude. Adopt an elderly person and wash and change them every day. <laughs> That's what helping a human being is. Pouting about paying taxes and saying it's the same as pointing a gun at someone is a tantrum. Pathetic. End quote. Now, I don't, I don't know where yeah. they got that rant out of what we talked about. I mean, it has nothing to do with any of the religious aspects or anything. The only thing I can think of is, is perhaps when you talked about Jesus not being a socialist and talking about, you know, love your neighbor doesn't mean point a gun at your neighbor to make them pay for their neighbor, that that might be what elicited such a response. But I responded to them like, okay, so it's, if, if he's saying that paying taxes and saying it's the same as pointing a gun at someone is a tantrum and it's pathetic, I said, well, what happens if I don't pay the money that the politicians demand of me? And obviously he didn't respond to that because, well, I mean, how can you? Because it literally is a gun to your head. But anyway, I thought it was an interesting uh, comment to get to get any feedback on something. And, and that episode was one that I expected it because of the, the tone and the, you know, the subject matter. Uh, but it, it's like out of left field. It's like it's not even what I would have expected someone to be offended about. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost as if Christians have, you know, are, are the actual adults in the room and they're accustomed to being shit on. I mean, I don't know if you read the Babylon Bee, which is way funnier than the Onion is these days. But if you read their headlines, they're very aware that Christians and especially like white male Christians are some of the least, you know, most problematic and least respected. And, you know, they're not part of this. Like, you know, they don't get any victim points. They're, you know, seen as like evil oppressor colonizer people. So they're very much aware of criticisms of their religion. So when we come along with our weak ass criticisms, they're like, yeah, I've heard that one before. Yeah, it totally rolls off their back. No problem. But if you upset one of these social justice types by saying that taxation is theft or something like that, man, their their pain is getting a bunch real quick. And then they get all emotional. And yeah, the keyboard warrior it up. Yeah. Now, do you think that this is a sign of the collapse of Western society and morals and so like the Thermians, where their society crumbled and fell into disarray, they were saved by the historical documents that were transmitted into space with the depictions of heroism and overcoming all odds, never give up, never surrender. They took that as their way of life. They took that as their philosophy and turned their society around as a result. And this was something that was made not for that purpose. This is something that was just a downstream, unintended consequence, unintended effect. So it, it goes to show that no matter what you do when you get your message out there, you never know what's going to happen, wh who it's going to reach. And I liken this to the Ron Paul moment where he reached a whole bunch of people with a message that sparked in their minds like as, as a true thing. And so it inspired a lot of people to look into libertarianism and learn about it. Uh, I believe that you and I, Robert, are libertarians as a result of Ron Paul. And also, Murray Rothbard's writings, he was writing when libertarians could fill his living room, and he was still putting out tons of articles and books and giving lectures and doing a bunch of content. And he had no hopes of within his lifetime of that really having much of an effect, but he still took the time and the effort to put it out there, and they're still publishing books based on his notes and his work. And it's very, very powerful, and it's almost like how they made this show and how it inspired a culture to save itself. Do you see libertarianism and Austrian economics as potentially those historical documents to save Western society from collapsing on itself? 
Robert, go. So you're saying that if we broadcast Murray's lectures into space, there could be some Thermians or some other civilization that would see that and want to make their civilization great again. I'm not therefore. saying that. I'm not saying that literally, but I'm saying in a in a sort of loosely similar way. Like, so you had some kind of fantasy where you were beamed aboard some alien spaceship. And they were like, Daniel, please, how do we save our society? And you were like, I know exactly. I got these lectures. And they're like, the historical documents. <laughs> and they're like, Daniel, please save us. And you were like, Austrian economics, man, go. And no, you do I mean, it. But really, like philosophically speaking, if you could get people to not hurt each other and not take each, not take each other's stuff. Well, and, that's always going to happen. But not in an institutionalized way. But not, yes, not legally. Right, right. Legal plunder and the belief in authority is is the culprit. And then if people had an understanding of Austrian economics, so like what incentives and actual downstream effects of things are, and why almost every intervention, well, literally every intervention is using force and preventing people from making voluntary choices that they would have otherwise made to their mutual benefit, then everyone is worse off as a result. So I guess what I'm saying is that the message that we, we uh, espouse would save a society if people were to more fully adopted. But it seems uh -huh. as if the trend is going the other way in present day. The pendulum is definitely swinging the other way. Swinging towards socialism. More and more people are seeing a positive angle of socialism. And, you know, every time it destroys a society, they're like, well, that's not through socialism. So it makes me wonder what they actually think socialism is. Just all good stuff. Just sandwiches and turkeys and cupcakes. And no force. It's and just sharing. Everyone's sharing. sharing. Everybody wants to share all the time. That's what it is. Right. And, and like the Thermians, they discover lies and deceit and that is politicians and that is political promises yeah that's another thing that's a thing that kind of bothered me about the behaviors of the main characters in this film and i'm wondering your guys's take on that did you have an issue with the fraud committed by the tim allen character and afterwards the rest of the crew when they purported themselves to be these space explorer people when they were absolutely not mm. daniel anarchist mom that's a good question. I never even thought about that. You could look at it as the Machiavellian perspective, the end justified the need. But I mean, that's not really uh, a good way to look at things. So I guess, yeah, they were kind of liars. But I never even thought of it that way. And the Thermians said that they learned this from Cisco or Sissy or whatever his name was. Ceres. Ceres. <laughs> and, and they said it's a concept that they learned at some great cost. And I mean, that that's politics. You know, that's people lying to you to get your vote, promising you things. And it's all lies all the time. And they they rarely, rarely follow through. But as far as the main characters uh, playing their roles, at first they were accidentally doing it, right? Tim Allen thought that he was being invited to do another gig, to do like a, you know, some event where he's to play his character. And so he, um, you know, he, he doesn't even, even take that seriously. And when the, the Sarah's character first is involved with him, he's like, all right, fire all guns, fire all missiles, fire all phasers. And he's just takes off, you know, he's hung over whatever but then he realizes or he learns that it's real and he wants to go back and he thinks that he's this hero because that's what everyone tells him that he is because of his prior experience with them so he's trying to get his his other you know cast members to go and play along and then when there actually is serious trouble i think they put on this facade to maintain the morale of the people who look to them as heroes and i think that that was a necessary thing at the time yeah. was it an immoral thing they're committing fraud uh, in a way, I mean, they are faking it till they make it and their character arc completes when they actually are able to to make those decisions that 
are effective and do have valor and uh the uh, laredo can actually uh drive the ship pilot the ship properly yeah, it ends justified and made it right for them to lie and to get even though everything turned out okay and they still lied yeah they lied what if what if somebody came along and were like hey are you a you're an auto mechanic right and you're like yep totally an auto mechanic and they're like, great, we got this super critical mission and we're going to definitely need an auto mechanic because this car is going to break down in the middle of the Alaskan highway and we're all going to die if this auto if you don't do your job. And you're like, no problem, let's do it. And then you just fake it till you make it, right? Or would you actually say, you know, maybe, maybe you guys should get like a real auto mechanic because that's going to be a better option for you. Right, but you're assuming foreknowledge before they actually are in the event, in those trying times. Like they were already in this position before it became serious. And they were backed against the wall. And so were all the people that they were, or the aliens, the Thermians, that they were helping. And it wasn't very long that they maintained the facade. When the uh, Thermian leader was being tortured, Tim Allen did crack and he said, yeah, all right, we're just actors. We don't know anything. So you don't have a problem with anything Tim Allen does up until what? He's just a completely moral character for you the entire movie? I love the Tim Allen character. And not only because he's a conservative-ish libertarian light type who pisses off Hollywood and his show got canceled, I think because of his politics. Yeah. Um, the show's being picked up by Fox. Say that again with, I said the show's being picked up by Fox. All right. A third time. So I hear it because you're a woman. <laughs> what? <laughs> I told you in the pre-show, which is available for our Patreon supporters at lastnarrative.com says Patreon, that because you're a woman, I need to hear everything three times before it sinks in. Otherwise I'll just put you on ignore mode. All right. Their show is again for 2019, 2020 by Fox in 2017 by AB. Okay. All right. So I stand corrected. That's good. That's good. And I think, you know, Tim Allen, he's a, he's a pretty funny guy. And he also doesn't, um, he calls out this SJW stuff, you know? He this, said this, in a 2018, um, and he said that he was um, kind of an anarchist. But then he went on to say that um, he doesn't, um, he wants the government that's responsible and that um, actually does what they're going to do. But then he also went on to say that his political party is the one that doesn't pay taxes. So. I don't think he knows what anarchism is because he said in that article that he's kind of an anarchist, but then he went on to say that it was kind of for government. So he sounds like an ally that's still trying to figure things out. Yeah. He's got a, you know, he's got a full-time job. He's got to survive in Hollywood. He's it's not easy, man. You can't say too much. And I, I, I think that governance and government are two different things. I think you do need to have societal structures in place, voluntary hierarchies and things of that nature. Just remove the coercion and the, uh, the belief in, in undue authority. Yes. And if he's against taxes, then, I mean, he just needs to take that to the logical conclusion and he'll be, he'll be right, right yeah, beside us. So hard people, they don't want to do that. They don't want to let go. There's a lot of built-in cognitive dissonance, a lot of indoctrination you got to build, you got to work through. It's a feature. It's not a bug. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about a few of the other characters before we, uh, we are actually already getting low on time. We've, we've filled up this hour. <laughs> Good job, everybody. We did it. Well, we're not there yet. I still have a bunch more content, actually. So let's talk about some of the other characters. Um, I, I liked the uh, the monk, um, Shaloub. What's his name? Tony Shaloub? Yes. He was in X-Files. Two episodes of All right. So we have our nerd here who can nerd. tell all about which episode number. And, and I thought that was a fun um, callback reference when they were talking about like tactics that they were going to use with the rock monster or with Saris. Like, oh, like in episode 22, do this. You know? <laughs> That was that was kind of a, a cool little nod. But um, I thought that the Shaloub character was kind of funny because it almost seemed like he didn't give a fuck. It almost seemed like he was 
pie. But right, and and even uh, the the Sam Rockwell character, uh, crew crew member number six, the red shirt guy who died, you know, as soon as they beam down, uh, he's like, "Are you high?" To yeah. the Schmidt character, and but then then he has a turning point. He has this character arc where he realizes with the um, what do they call it, the dicer, where it's supposed to be like a particle beamer, but it uh, it chops you up into little bits and then reassembles you. Yeah. And it turns uh -huh. it turns that little uh, pig monster thing inside out. Yes. And then he loses confidence in his abilities. But then something inspires him, and I think it's the uh, the woman alien, the girl, yeah. the girl uh, that she like believes in him, and so he he actually can do it and saves saves the Tim Allen character shirtless, of course. In a another funny nod to how Shatner would always end up with no shirt on in the original series in the '60s. But anyway, I thought that was fun, and I also thought that the Rockwell character was pretty funny. Yeah, how does it work making out with a octopus tentacle monster? I mean, they're just have these like visual fixer thingamajiggers, right? But I assume when you're actually touching one, you're feeling all the squishy parts and the things of the tentacles. Yeah, so this is like what you were saying earlier. You want to talk about like what's feasible here. What what would happen in reality if you had one of these machines that could optically change you, but you would still be a squid monster underneath? And Shalhoub actually ended up uh, rather enjoying that. And it's off screen. And then Rockwell's character is like, oh, no one should do that. Get a room, you know? So it's it's, it's alluding to, I think, some, uh, some BP. Tentacle porn, the Japanese anti-tentacle porn. Right, yeah. So, I mean, really, you're catering to all audiences in this movie, Galaxy Quest. Something for everybody. It's a great movie. It's got something for everyone. All right, moving on. There's uh, They go down to the planet after going through the mines and damaging their reactor core. And why, why do the mines not destroy their ship? Like their ship seems virtually indestructible. It gets shot with missiles by Ceres's ship. It goes through the minefield. And yeah, it gets damaged. And when they do the computer report with Boobs McGee repeating everything, 97% hole, hole damage and their dilithium crystal thing, which I know that's not what they call it in this. They call it beryllium, maybe. Beryllium. Yeah, the beryllium sphere. Uh, but it's, it's clearly a, a knockoff of the dilithium crystals from Star Trek. But... Um, why, how is their ship so like super indestructible until it's not, you know, like until you need to feel danger for the, for the crew. Um, and, and then they go down to this uh, planet that's nearby to get these crystals from these demon babies who were probably reprising their role in the passion of the Christ last week with <laughs> carrying one of these little demon babies. It's the power of lazy writing. It's where you'll see it in like X-Men movies and all kinds of different movies where the heroes, this in this case, the ship has varying power levels dependent on the scene because there always has to be tension, but it, you can't kill the main characters. So in the X-Men movies, you'll have a character that'll show that it has a power in one scene and then forget that they have that power in the next scene. Cause in that scene, you know, if they had that power, it would just solve the situation instantly. It's just, it's, it's lazy writing. Right. And what you can write yourself, you can write yourself into corners and you're like, well, how do we get out of this one? Ah, just keep things moving along and hopefully people don't worry about it. And this is what we talked about at the end of Dodgeball, right? And they, they actually made a joke about this whole type of situation. Deus Ex Machina, yeah, thing. Yeah, right. Right, which I, yeah, I think that's pretty hilarious, especially when they so uh, openly call that out. Now, back to the, the creepy minor miners. Um, I thought there were some pretty funny jokes in here because they're working these mines and the monk character's like... <laughs> They're probably three years old. <laughs> and there's like a good spot to talk about child labor and how child labor, of course, it, is it's a hot button for people. And it, it sounds terrible, right? It sounds awful. But the whole of human history up until recent centuries has been 
difficult and hard to get by. And so children actually did have to work in order to provide enough sustenance for the family to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you even see this in, um, in minimum wage laws. Uh, Rothbard has a lecture talking about this, where there were families, immigrant families, who were working together on the beaches, clamming, digging clams, and they would get paid by the bucket or by the, the, by the weight or whatever. And so the family would be out there together digging the clams and collectively they could all gather enough clams to make a decent living, to provide for themselves. Well, minimum wage comes along and now they need to be paid by the hour. Well, now they've priced out, oh, and they've also outlawed child labor. So they've priced out um, the less productive of the workers, right? And they have eliminated the possibility of the children working. So now you only have the men working. So now the family struggles. Right, because the man alone can only gather so many clams. Right. He was gathering probably the most out of the family. But now you've just eliminated all of the other members of that family from being able to collect the clams. And the clams are still selling for, you know, whatever the clam rate is, right? So when he was, when the family unit was more productive, they were better off. They had a better standard of living. But when you had these regulations come in and prevent the family from all contributing, then they were worse off as a result. And by the way, what are the alternatives to child labor when there's not enough capital and investment for, um, for them to do something else, right? Like when, when you're living so close to the subsistence level, you're eliminating their ability to rise up out of that. And it's not as if they'd be skipping in meadows or going to school as an alternative. Uh, in you know, like modern day Bangladesh, I think it's um, Ben Powell, I think is the, the guy who does the research. He actually studied this stuff. And this is when these kids end up in like child prostitution and, and other, yeah. uh, you know, obviously worse off situations than doing productive work in, say, a factory or a business. Yeah, it only hurts them. Just do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, leftists like to think that it was, you know, thanks to politicians and labor union that saved children from having to work. As if parents didn't care about their kids up until whenever that was. Did we lose Daniel? I think we lost Daniel. Hopefully we're still recording. I'm here. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh, okay. You froze there. Oh, well, it's probably your terrible internet connection there, Robert. Suck it. All right. So so that was my uh, rant on the miners. Well, no, I actually have a little bit more. So the demon babies, uh, the Sigourney Weaver character, Boobs McGee, she thinks they're super cute. And one of the injured ones goes up to the water to drink the water. And they're like, oh, they're going to help him. They but no, wrong. they bare their teeth and they're these little demons and they eat him. They eat the weak. They cull the weak to to maintain the collective's strength. They kill the weakest link. And that is, to me, akin to socialism. Only they don't attack the weak. They attack the strong, the ones who are successful, the productive. And they parasite on them. They leech on them. And they tax them. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny because the left understands taxes when they want to disincentivize something. They, and they have tobacco taxes. They have sin taxes. They have soda taxes. They have all sorts of taxes in that realm where they're like, okay, if it's going to cost more, then people will do it less. We're going to manipulate behavior by increasing the cost of something. However, they don't apply it to minimum wage or regulations that make hiring somebody, employing them more expensive. They deny that that has any effect on employment. Also, when you're taxing people based on their profit, based on their production, their success, you are taxing them on success therefore you're saying you want less success the incentive structure is backwards and they want it both ways but the 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 thing that's in play they are not consistent about it's just cognitive dissonance 
and economic ignorance, I would say. Like they probably view those those situations as different. And in some ways, sure, they are different. But I think that the mechanism in play is identical. You're making something cost more. Therefore, the demand for that, whatever it is, is going to go down. Yeah, it's a basic economic law of supply and demand. But they like to pretend that it doesn't happen. And if you bring that up, up to a state, they'll cite X and X study saying, well, this study didn't find any overall decline in whatever, whatever, you know, employment in this sector at this time. But they don't talk about how, well, what was the median or the, the base level of the, you know, the pay for the lowest economic workers. So if the, the minimum wage is $15 an hour, but you're already getting paid, you know, $14.50 anyway or whatever, well, it's not going to have a huge effect. But if it goes up to like $50 an hour, yeah, you're going to, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's just one problem with it. I mean, there's, there's also the, uh, you, you can't isolate these things in, a, in, you know, in a study. It's not a, it's not a scientific experiment. You're not controlling all the variables and, and people aren't stones and atoms. They respond to incentives and there's other outside environmental effects that are at play. And so those will minimize or distort whatever they're finding. Also, how much science is done, and it's actually counter to the philosophy that they, they espouse to, is oftentimes they try to divine theory out of the data versus applying theory to illustrate with the data. You follow what I'm saying? Like it's they sort of have the cart before the horse. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, sir. We should probably right. finish up this episode. Well, I actually have more more content. You got you got more more three... tangential relations between this movie and econ economics. Right. So we're near. near what, what else you got? We're nearly upon May first, which is May Day. <laughs> in the rest of the world, not in the United States per se, but I think it's becoming more and more a thing. May Day is a socialist holiday. It's about revolution. It's about marches. It's about um, workers uniting, et cetera, et cetera. My wife and I went down to Santiago, Chile, um, like about eight or, nine, or five or six years ago. And we were in downtown Santiago during May Day. And we saw the marches. And while we were seeing these marches, there was this uh, fomentation of violence and threat and uh, this just air of it's not a safe place to be. And they were a pack of wild dogs. And there were dogs everywhere in Chile. But there was this pack of dogs, similar to these demon babies, attacking a weaker dog during this, this protest march outside of, um, I forget what it's called, um, but it's where Allende and the coup took place. It's the big famous um, uh, building in Santiago. There was the airstrike. They fired bombs into it. La Moneda, I think is what it's called. Anyway, so we saw this like dog fight, and it's this tag team of dogs attacking one dog and it's like these demon babies attacking the weaker one but it's also like socialists ganging up via democratic means to pillage another wow you're good <laughs> daniel can see he can see economics in anything the economics whisperer right so when you guys were saying there's not much in this i was like you guys are thinking too small there's so much there's so much in this now there's even another thing which this goes back to your deceit question um Somebody says, and I forget exactly who, but they say he's wearing a costume, not a uniform. He doesn't deserve the authority. And I think they were talking about the Tim Allen character. Yeah, Allen said that. Right, yeah. And, and I thought it was a great point because I view the police in this way. They're just wearing a costume. They don't legitimately have the authority to do many of the things that they do. Here, here, amen, sir. Correct, 100%. Hey, guess what? What? Monday... I've had a four years, so Monday I'm going to take care of it. So I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, I knew it. I just want to look at her. You know she's a crook. 
I'm going to miss the full court to take care of it. You've been getting away with far too much for far too long. Yep. Yeah, is it one of those wiffle ball bat situations like Robert here? No. She's not that much of a crook. No, you know, I ran a stop sign. It's never went court for my... Well, you better lawyer up and shut up. <laughs> I might have to. So what do you got to do? You got to pay some monies? Probably. I probably have to pay lots of money. It's been four years. Four wow. years. Yeah, the government's wow. sitting there. Bitch better have my money. <laughs> I'm just going to go in and play dumb and be like, I can. I don't remember. Remember this? I forgot. Well, good luck with that. I would uh, consult a lawyer. Consult a, a legal, a legal person. I can't give you legal advice. <laughs> nah, I'm just gonna go in. Wing it. What All could right. go wrong? What's the worst that could happen? You guys, it's nothing. It's just. It's not like she's gonna get thrown in jail for the rest of her life. It's just like running a stop sign. The and state can... never puts anybody in jail unless they really deserve it. Never unjustly. Never. Be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You know, we're pulling for you. And, and if, you know, if it does, if the worst does happen, that's all going to, it's going to be all the more incentive for voluntary contributions to your Patreon at anarchist mom, patreon.com slash anarchist mom's legal defense fund. Nothing bad's going to happen. We're not saying that. Just repeat that over and over like a mantra. All right. So back to the demon babies. When they're running away from the, uh, you know, they got the beryllium dilithium crystal things are rolling them. They say there's thousands of them. I call bullshit. Even with the CGI effect, there's maybe a hundred. And then yeah. when they pull out wide, you know, as, as the ship's taking off, and, uh, the Tim Allen character is being carried by these guys and they're going to smash his head with a rock and eat him. There's maybe a hundred. There's not thousands. So I thought that was bullshit. And that Industrial Light and Magic and Spielberg and all the rest of them that did this uh, portion could have CGI'd a million orcs in there, like Lord of the Rings style, uh, like how we had um, in our discussion with Anarchist Mom last fall. And what episode was that again? Was it uh, lastnighters.com slash 48? That's the show notes page it for that. December. Back in December. That's right. So anyway, Ceres destroys the whole planet of the Thermians, and the only remaining Thermians alive are on this ship. And Ceres tortures their leader, and then he traps the remaining members of the crew on one of the decks and then opens up uh, a hole in the ship to eliminate the oxygen. So they're asphyxiating yet slowly and torturously uh, the crew, obviously buying time for the heroes to come and save the day. Um, but I thought that that was one of those Bond villain moments where Saris is just like, ha ha ha, I'm going to win. So therefore I'm not going to even bother taking this seriously and eliminating you guys immediately. I'm going to give you guys a chance without realizing it. So also in lazy writing contrivance, but yes, that's lazy, lazy in my comedy movies here. Lazy way to try and create some tension. Yeah. Now, what did you think of Saris's comment? And, and I should have brought this up earlier because you talked about the, the crew members lying and giving deceit to the Thermians because Saris saw the little blip of their show and was like, well, you're obviously actors, you know, like how do these guys not get that? But he says, you guys have all done far greater damage than I ever could have. Bravo. And that's like this destroying their planet. No, but right. they're going to hurt their feelings. You hurt their feelings. It's yeah, way more important than their planet. Well, th this ties right into the false hope situation that you were talking about earlier. The, the fraudulent you know, deceit of letting these people believe these false promises to maintain their morale. And that's also similar to the um, political promises, you know, and, and Sarah's even makes that point. Like they understand lies and deceit. They don't understand, per, you know, like entertainment and pretend. 
But when you get it to the point of lies and deceit, then they finally it clicks with them because they explain to, explain it to them like you know like they're a five year old or whatever he says, like a child. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Another contrivance: uh -huh. the crusher hallway, which seems so very bad. Much like the CGI like, did not age well at all. Well, I'm just talking about the concept. Yeah, the concept's terrible too. But it's like you know, you're playing Mario, Super Mario Brothers, and you got to like time it just right to get through this area. It's like all these video games, these side scrollers had this type of situation, this random hallway that's like booby trapped. But if you get the sequence down, you can get through. Right. And they did hang a lantern on it, but I don't know. It didn't save the sequence from they hang a lantern on it by, by you know, calling it out. Like what writer right, wrote this? I hate this person. This is terrible. Yeah. This is dumb. Was it funny for you? Only because they played it up ham, ham style. Oh, they hammed it. They hammed it up good. Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, but this was this, you know, similar thing to all the uh, callbacks and uh, allusions to things like the tropes that you would find in Star Trek and, and, you know, in episodes and then manifesting themselves because this is the Thermians replicating this entire technology, this this entire ship based on what was seen in the show. Now, well, I'm, yeah, I'm impressed the Thermians could even do that because right. when you're writing a TV show, you're not thinking about the logistics and the reality of this ship. You're just writing, well, okay, what do we need for the scene? Okay, we're going to need this. Put this in there. The Thermians actually made it all work and put it all together. Way more impressive. Right, but based on the movements of the actors in the show. So to me, that, that sounds like an impossibility. Because if the actors are just doing random things. Right, how could you make a real thing work really? Right. I mean, th these guys must have like some pretty amazing. <laughs> they're just super smart. But yet they're like children. And yes. they believe in fairy tales. Or politicians, political promises. Both. Now, what was Saris's motivation other than just to be a bad guy? Does anyone he's evil, know? Daniel? He was evil. He looked evil, so he's evil. I mean, he probably got bullied when he was a kid. You know. Yeah, I mean, he had those weird things on his back. They're probably always bumping into things and knocking stuff over. I don't know. And he also had very severe punishment for his underlings when they failed him in their task. He would behead them. Yeah, that's not very nice. He was a jerk. Now, I think I saw a report that, um, who's the leader of North Korea now? It's uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un? Is that right? Un. Apparently, the, some summit with, with Trump or the or a U.S. ambassador uh, recently did not go well. Um, several months ago, there was like a successful one, and then they were going to do another one. And, and I don't know what happened with it. But apparently, some of the people responsible in the eyes of Un for failing at this were put to death by firing squad in this alleged report. I don't know the veracity of this. It could be pound fake news. I saw it on Yahoo, but who knows? But that's very Sarah-like. That is. No, I've heard similar reports about North Korea in the past. I don't know, obviously, about this one being true or not. And I don't know if the reports I've heard in the past are true or not. But from what I hear, that's very much the norm. Yeah, yeah Michael Mouse's book, it was like that. Have you read his book? Dear Leader? Yeah. Have you we'll, read? Put a, we'll put a, a, a link to that on the show notes page. Oh, dear Reader. It is. All but right, dear reader, yes. It's dear reader, but it's because it can't say L's. Yes, it's, 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 that's the way Malice works. He yeah. makes funny. Yeah, but yeah, I've read that book. All right, well, we'll put that on the show notes page, uh, lastnighters.com slash 69, everyone. All right, so a few more notes on here. Um, I thought that the callback slash payoff to beaming up the rock dude to kick ass was kind of fun. Yes. Oh, I'm not in. Uh, that broke up, Robert. Say that again. I said you're allowed that opinion, sir. All right. Thank you very what much. You you're welcome. What you fail to realize is that this movie is actually a good movie. 
and that the story of them faking it till they make it is actually good. And we had plenty to talk about on this episode of The Last Matters. So let's get into final summary and review time. And we'll start with Anarchist Mom, because we are we are we are almost out of time on this one. We're way out of time. Over. <laughs> okay. It's a fun movie. I like it. I'm not gonna give it a ten, like I say seven point five. All right, Robert, you're up. So this has a lot of famous actors having some fun with a fair, you know, a boof setup of a cherished franchise. Uh, for me, I prefer Spaceballs, but this, you know, this probably has better acting or at least better actors in it. Uh, still suffers for some lazy writing, but there are there are payoffs, there are, you know, setups and payoffs, and there are characters that have arcs. So, you know, it's not a complete disaster of a movie. So I, I'm going to give this a positive review. I think it's like a six. Um, although it only gets a six because of its genre and what it was trying to do. It was a movie, you know, setting up Star Trek. If this was just a generic comedy, I'd get a way worse review because I didn't laugh at all. What? The whole movie. Not once. I might have smiled a few times. But it was dumb and lame. The humor. Oh, Maybe it was funny back God. in the day. Maybe I'm just a bitter old man. You are a, bitter, just a bitter old man. Yeah, that's what I am. All right. If it didn't, if it's a comedy and didn't make me laugh, it's not a good comedy. Suck it. It's a six. All right. Robert gives it a six. So Robert's back to his movie hating trope. His his role on the show is to hate the movies that we watch, and that's fine. That's fine. I thought this movie was actually pretty good. I'd never seen it before. Um, I got this movie back when I bought my very first DVD player at Best Buy back in college. They were incentivizing people to buy DVD players at the time because they were still a relatively new technology, uh, but it was starting to get saturated. Prices were going down. And so they started offering, like, get five DVDs when you buy this DVD player. So I did buy a DVD player. And Galaxy Quest was one of the movies, as was Stargate and uh, I think a few others. Now, I never watched this DVD. I don't even have this DVD anymore. When we moved a few years ago, we got rid of all of our DVDs, and now we do Amazon Prime and Vudu and those types of things. But it just goes to show you that the level of interest in me watching this movie goes back a good 20 years now of not watching this movie <laughs> until last night based on Anarchist Moms choosing it for this show. <laughs> and I got to say, I got to say that I was actually impressed by the movie. And I, I felt challenged by both of you when you both said to me that you didn't know what there was to talk about. So I shoehorned in a bunch of stuff from my notes and we made an extra long bonus episode here of the last nighters episode 69. So I, I enjoyed this movie. I thought the Tim Allen character was great. Uh, the send up of star Trek is pretty funny. Uh, you mentioned Spaceballs, Robert, and that seems to be the equivalent of the star Wars. And uh, I, so I think that that is also a movie I'd like to do at some point in the future. It's a Mel Brooks one. It's uh, it's, it's really funny. But um, just in general, I thought this was this was a lot of fun. Even the um, people who played uh, the actors in the original Star Trek and The Next Generation, um, I read some uh, some of their comments about this, and they also enjoyed this movie. Um, John Luke Picard really enjoyed it, as did Shatner. And actually, Tim Allen became friends with Shatner as a result of this movie. So I think that it uh, it it fills a a little niche. It became part of the uh, canon of Star Trek as demonstrated earlier when we talked about it being rated the number seven Star Trek movie, even though it's not technically a Star Trek movie. And so because it's episode 69 of the show, I'm going to go with a 6.9 when really maybe it deserves a 6.5, but I'm going to give it a couple of bonus points 
on this version or this uh, this episode here of the Last Nighters. So that's my summary and review. And Robert, next week it's going to be Cinco de Drinco weekend. So I think we got to get our cultural appropriation sombreros on and talk about another comedy, Three Amigos. And it's 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 basically the comedy version of Seven Samurai Magnificent Seven, which we've done in the past. We've done those movies as well. So I'll put show notes um, links to those. But uh, so you can be prepped for this, everyone. But Three Amigos, um, an interesting side note, is not available digitally other than for renting. So I had to buy a physical DVD. It'll be here tomorrow. Thanks to Amazon. I ordered it today. It'll be here tomorrow. So thank you, Amazon. I'll put a link to that on our show notes page as well. So if you want to get a copy of the DVD, you can get a copy of the DVD. And we will earn a very, very teeny tiny, itsy bitsy, teeny weeny little commissiony. All right. So Robert, any final comments before we give the floor to Anarchist Mom to plug her her wares and say goodnight? No, excellent job uh, carrying this episode with your super tangentially related economic links to the film. Well done, Daniel. Just proud of us. So proud of you. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for being proud of me. Um, Anarchist Mom, where can people find your show, the little rants that you talk about, and where can they support you for your future legal defense fund? <laughs> you can support me on Patreon and um, you can find me on the podcast platform, Anarchist Mom. Not the mom. And you also have anarchistmom.com, correct? Yes, I do. And All right. All right. So we will put that on our show notes page. Thank you so much for being a guest on this episode of Last Nighters, episode 69. And with that, I'll say good night from last night, everyone. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.